Hey everybody, this is Danny Heinemann from RUF at the University of Wisconsin, and I'm here with one of my interns, Kelsey Sullivan. Hey guys, welcome to episode four. Um, the Story to Tell is a podcast that we are putting together while we are in these strange times of quarantine when we can't be in person with our students here. It's a way for us to hopefully tell some good stories and set them in their historical context and also their uh, biblical and theological context. So uh, we've done a few episodes so far, but what we're going to do now for the next several weeks is zero in on where the Reformed, which is the R in RUF, where Reformed came from. So we, we talked last week about, you know, kind of the origins of the university, which is the U. And that's a little, that's a eh, somewhat simpler story. But the R, the Reformed story, is a really long and really complicated story. It is. <laughs> It was my first time really peeking at some of this history, doing the research for this podcast, and it's pretty overwhelming, but I think it's important that we talk about it because Danny can probably agree with me on this. Like when we're, when we're working on campus and people haven't heard of what RUF is, they usually go, what's rough? (laughs) And um, it's this conversation of, well, it's Reform University Fellowship. And then it's like, well, what's reform? Yep. Um, And so I think it's really important that we trace sort of the root, what is Reformed. But in order to do that, we can't even really start with the Reformation. We have to start even farther back than that. Um, Yeah, and if you don't know what the Reformation is, you know, it's like not everybody even knows what that is. So... It's a you can give like a really a really succinct answer, which we have uh, when people ask us that question. But the first question we should probably be asking is like, well, how much time do you have? And at like a when we're at tabling, <laughs> when we're tabling, the, you know, we don't have much time, so we can't tell the story. But since we, you know, we got time now, <laughs> right? Uh, we so can, where are we going to start, Danny? Where's the? Well, it's hard to it's hard to choose where to start, but I think what we're going to do is we are going to try to give like a really brief overview of the main major movements in the history of the church. And so what we're going to try to do, I mean, there there's all different kinds of ways to skin this cat, as they say, but what we're going to try to do is talk about the, the Council of Nicaea, which was the first council that the church ever had, and that, that set the trajectory for the church in many ways like even still to today, we still recite the creed that was first formulated there and the issues that were surrounding that council. And then we're going to move to the way, basically we're going to trace the divisions in the church, which is a really kind of sad way to trace the history, but they're important to understand who's who, what's what, what's going on in the history of the church. So we're going to talk about the division between Eastern and Western Christians, and then we're going to talk about divisions between Western Christians, which are Protestant and Roman. Hopefully we'll be able to get to that. We'll see how much time it takes. So let's look at the Nicaea Council. Yeah. That's what it is, right? Yep. If we're talking divisions there, it seems like the Nicaea Council, yeah, what's the main argument going on? Yep. Yeah. So the brief. Between those people. The, the kind of like 30,000 foot view of what was going on there. This is in 325 AD, right? So Jesus dies around 33, 36 AD. Peter and Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament, they die in 65 AD. John, the last apostle to die, dies around 100. So it's been like 200 and 220 years since the, the apostles died. Then that time, there had been some persecutions. Christianity was growing, but it was still like a minority. But then Constantine becomes the emperor in the middle of like a civil war. And he's the last emperor to, to really unite East and West. 
the Roman Empire. What if people what if people think of Constantine? Well, people have mixed opinions about him, and it's hard to it's hard to discern what what's true and what's not. But Constantine, the legend is that Constantine saw a symbol in a dream before a key battle when he was trying to, you know, take power in Rome and it the symbol that he saw in his dream was was uh, the chi and the rho, which are two Greek letters that are the first two letters in Christ. And if you've seen, you maybe seen it on churches, it looks like an X and a P that are laid over each other, the chi rho. So he saw it and he took that as a sign that like his he should pray to God and that God would protect him or whatever. He won the battle. He painted the the symbol on his shields. He won the battle. Eventually, he won power in Rome. And when he took power he made Christianity legal. So he made it essentially illegal to persecute Christians. So Christianity had been sporadically persecuted for the first, you know, 300 years of its existence. Sometimes it was really intense, sometimes it was not. The most intense persecution was leading up to Constantine's rule. And so Constantine basically made it, he made it legal, he made it safe to be a Christian. And when that happened in Constantine's rule, that Christianity kind of exploded. It didn't become the official religion of the empire until like the later part of the third or the fourth century, um, like 380, when his sons made it the official religion. But, you know, when the emperor is taking Christianity as his religion, then like most, it's not uncommon for most people to begin to convert that way as well. So anyway, that had all happened. Yeah, so then he gathers a group of bishops, right? Yeah. 325 bishops. Yep, so that had all happened. And there was a guy named Arius who was a pastor who had started to articulate a theology that Jesus, because it was like unconscionable in his view that God would become part of the like defiled and messy and gross and humiliating human experience like it was just like that's too that's improper for the divine he said that like surely god could not have become fully man and so jesus must must have not been god does that make sense right it does make sense but there's an issue there right because if yeah god couldn't be fully man that would kind of contradict some of the integral parts of christianity that's such right as the sacrifice of the flesh on the cross that's right being fully human to pay for sins that's right so it was like a fashionable position to take uh, back in the day because it it squared pretty well with like Greek philosophical ideas, but it was it was it was directly contradictory to the Bible and to the Christian kind of theological account of salvation. So there's a guy named Athanasius who decided to go have a fight. It was like a knockdown dragout debate. Yeah, it? yeah. The 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 slogan, which is pretty sweet, is. Uh, I think it's Athanasius contra Mundo, which is Athanasius against the world. He was just like, I'm not willing to cede any ground on this because this strikes at the very heart of the meaning of Christianity. So Constantine called a council and he got all these bishops together to try to make peace. And at that council, they condemned Arius and they said that they they, they drafted a creed that is we still have it um, or a, a modified version of it the Nicene Creed is what we call it that that outline that articulated a theology that if you were an Arian you could not affirm and right and this, this the creed is that that's where we get the Trinity from right yeah well kind of yeah I mean this is where we were beginning to to articulate and con- like make more concrete our doctrines of the Trinity. And tracing out the implications for like different views on on the Trinity or 
you know, if you're going to say there's not a Trinity, what does that mean? You know, it's 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 basically like they they kind of work backwards from the the implications and being like, well, it must be this way because of what this doctrine will imply, right? So Athanasius's commitment is summarized by a guy named Gregory, uh, a few, like a hundred, two hundred years later, saying like, what Christ did not assume in his person, he did not heal, and so if Christ is not both fully God and fully man. He has not, you know, divinely healed the created order, if that makes sense. Mm. It does. And so it sounds like Athanasius sort of won the argument. Mm-hmm. After a long but, time of fighting. Right. It reminds me, Danny, of... So Danny one time brought me to the Presbytery meeting <laughs> um, for Wisconsin. So there's a bunch of men in a room together. Um, and then me. I think I was the only female in the room. <laughs> But it took about 30 minutes for them to come to a conclusion about what we were even talking about in the first place. And there was a lot of yays and nays. And I imagine just like that's a lot of what was going on at this meeting was a lot of. Yeah, man. I'm sure it was really. Argue their point. Yeah. I'm, I bet it was m- m- even more chaotic than the, the Wisconsin Presbytery. <laughs> because the things they were talking about were a lot more you know, central to the very vital character of Christianity than what we were talking right. about. They're trying to preserve the doctrine of the church. Yeah, totally. Yeah, like, who is Jesus? That was a lot more, you know, closer to the center. Right. All right. So, but then our, it seems like in my research, Arianism, okay, yep. so a- Athanasius, they won the fight. Yep. But the other belief still was, you know, is still going on. The people were still... Totally believing that and it was still spreading i mean it's like there are components there there are pieces of arianism that are even still present today like arius was basically saying that jesus is the highest or the best of the created order but he's not divine because it's un it's improper for the divine to become created right and so like you can hear this in even ways people try to soften the nature of jesus today like people are like well he's like he was the best of us but he wasn't god you know right so this, even though it was officially condemned, there were still people that kind of held this view. And one of the critical things that was articulated in the Nicene Creed was this, the beginnings of, of what we would call today Trinitarian theology. So the Trinity is the theological word that we use for God, like the nature of God, that God is three persons, one God. So it's like Trinitarian math is one plus one plus one equals one, you know, which is challenging to wrap your head around. But that was what the church decided was required based on what the scriptures were teaching. So there's a little phrase in the Nicene Creed that if you have read it in church and you are from America, you and you're not, you're not, you don't attend an Eastern Orthodox church, you would say that I believe in the Holy Spirit who proceeds from the Father and from the Son. And the reason that that and from the Son is in there is basically to reinforce this idea that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, which are the three persons in the Trinity, that those three persons are equal in power and glory, in value, like that they are co-equal persons of this one God. Wasn't that another controversy that, like, that had to be made, that a yes. decision made on that? Yep. And that was another point of separation in the church. That's right. So that phrase was not in the original Nicene Creed, 
which is kind of disconcerting the first time you hear that. So the, the creed was first sketched at the Council of Nicaea. It was then codified and made totally official at the Council of Constantinople, which was about 50 years later. But it didn't include this phrase, and from the Son, from whom the Spirit proceeds. Now, that seems like a really minor and insignificant point of doctrine, but again, so much of this stuff is about the implications of these really basic doctrines. And for Western Christians, which was where the Arian controversy kind of kept popping up, Western Christians were really eager to protect the, the equality of Jesus, i.e. the equality of the Son with the Father. Does that make sense? So yeah. they were, they were their, their kind of like theological red flags shot up whenever there was the possibility that Jesus was not the same of the same kind of power and authority as the Father. And so they, they began, it began to be like kind of fashionable, even though it wasn't official, to add this and the Son and from the Son in Western, Christi- Western Christianity. In the East, that wasn't as important. In, in the East, I mean the Christians who are from like Turkey and eastward, like into Asia and all that kind of stuff. In the East, they just Arianism wasn't as central of a conflict. And when they looked at the scriptures, they were like, we don't see explicit reference from this, uh, of the Spirit proceeding from the Son. And so we're not comfortable putting that into the creed, even if it's like an acceptable theological position. And so there's this like long-standing tension between East and West over this specific phrase, because in the West, they were like, no, you don't understand. This is utterly critical that we articulate this. And in the East, they were like, we just really don't think it is. Can I ask you a question, dude? Yeah. Why did they think it was utterly essential? Well, basically because they were like, it, if you don't have this phrase in the creed, which is like the final authoritative interpretation of Christian theology, right? If you don't have it in the creed, then it leaves open the door for Arianism. Because if you just say the Spirit proceeds from the Father and not from the Son, then it seems like there is some, some kind of superiority of the Father to the Son in their, in their very nature. And, okay. and Western Christians and Eastern Christians, they would both say that, no, that's not true. They are, they are, they are co-equal. But the, the Eastern church just didn't, didn't have the same fear of Arianism as the Western church did, I would say. There might be some scholars who would disagree with me on that. But that's, in my reading of it, that's how, that's why it was so important to the West and not to the East. And so this, like, it was like a, like a low boil, you know, like a simmer. There was like a general peace between East and West, and there were all kinds of political things going on between, like the empire, the empire fell apart in like the middle of the 5th century, so around the year 400, 450, the Roman Empire's kind of falling apart. The Eastern Empire endured a little longer, but there's kind of political chaos going on, and there was this thing that happened there were there was a king in Germany who began to consolidate power, and he had kind of grand visions of restoring Europe to its Roman glory, and so he started a thing that we call now the what, what was the Roman glory? Well, just like the Roman Empire, it was like the biggest empire that that you know Europe, Asia, and Africa had seen. It went from it went as far west as England to you know, almost to like India, you know, it went like really far east. It went to northern or yeah, northern Africa and the south to all the way to the tip top of Europe. So it was this like huge empire that had relative stability for a little while and 
in prosperity because of the political, the relative political stability. But when the empire fell, it threw Europe into chaos. And so this guy, Charlemagne, he was kind of like, let's try to restore what we had. So he started a thing, he began to consolidate power. He started a thing that, that we call now the Holy Roman Empire, which is different from the Roman Empire, which is admittedly confusing. <laughs> But he, it wasn't when Charlemagne was crowned emperor. It was later than that because Charlemagne was like in the eight, the 700s, 800s, somewhere in there. But a descendant of his who wanted, who was going to be crowned emperor of the quote unquote Holy Roman Empire insisted that the Bishop of Rome, which is another word for the Pope, use the filioque clause, which is, that's the Greek for and from the sun insisted that he used that in his coronation service. And this is in 1014. So this is like 700, six, 650, 700 years later. And that basically set the precedent for Western churches, which were now strangely intermingled with what we call the Holy Roman Empire, to begin using this filioque clause, which just exacerbated the tension between East and West. Is that split the Orthodox and the Catholic Church? Kind of, yeah. So if you're like looking at churches today, you've got all kinds of Protestant churches. You've got Roman Catholic churches, which is usually what we just say when we say Catholic. And then you've got Eastern Orthodox churches. Now, Eastern Orthodox churches can be kind of pan-Orthodox, or they can be specifically tied to a country. And I don't, I'll, I confess some ignorance about like how exactly that structure works itself out in America because they were born out of like immigrant communities. And I'm not entirely sure how what the, the the structure of government is there. But generally, when somebody says Orthodox, they mean coming from the Eastern tradition. And when somebody says Catholic, they mean coming from the Western Roman tradition. Coming from the Eastern tradition, you're saying they believe that the Holy Spirit proceeded from the Father, not the Son. Right. So what happened, so in this, this thing with the emperor in the West happened in 1014. About 40 years later, the Bishop of Rome in the bishop of the city of Constantinople. So if you remember in your like high school history classes, there were two capitals to the empire. One was Rome and one was Constantinople. Rome was in the west, Constantinople, Constantinople was in the east. The bishops of Rome and of Constantinople were like big time power players in both politics and in the church. And they were having some conversations about like some theological differences and, and some territorial disputes. But the 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 bishop of rome sent a delegation of a few people over to constantinople in 1054 that bishop of rome dies during their journey they arrive in constantinople with some documents that one of the delegates had changed and the bishop of constantinople recognized this and said like you guys you guys need to like go back to Rome and figure your stuff out and then come back. Like, I'm not going to do any deals with the Pope that's dead. And I'm not going to like have this conversation with this hothead cardinal from the West who is just kind of like doing his own thing without approval of the Pope. So the talks kind of fell apart. The next day, this guy, I think his name was Hembert, Cardinal Hembert, something like that. He, <laughs> he because he had, had, had been invested with authoritative power from this pope that was now dead. He wrote a a document of excommunication and walked into the the Hagia Sophia, which is like the main church in Constantinople, put it on the altar, said some things in Latin which probably weren't understood by the Greek speaking eastern Christians who were there. 
And that document basically said that, that the Bishop of Constantinople is hereby excommunicated from the church, and anybody that follows his teaching is excommunicated from the church. Now, the Bishop of Constantinople rejected the filioque clause, the clause that talked about the spirit proceeding from the Son. And anybody who attended you know, Eastern churches also rejected that clause. And so when they, when they excommunicated the bishop and then everybody else that followed him, they essentially excommunicated the whole Eastern church. And then the Eastern church responded by excommunicating the entire Western church. And that is what we call the Great Schism, which was the break between Eastern and Western churches. Really, I mean, if you think about it, there were some churches that broke communion in 450 at the 451 at the Council of Chalcedon, which you don't have time to go into. But this like theme of, of schism, which is the word we use for like division in the church, like a breaking apart of unity, it's it's been a challenge in the church globally for basically the whole life of the church. And it's that's all in like direct contradiction to Jesus' prayer in John 17 that his whole church would be one. You know, I know. I was just going to ask you, like, what do you think Jesus would say about all of this? Because I feel like, you know, Jesus is about reconciliation and about unity and like bringing the body together. But what seems like is happening in the early church is like all of these divisions and yeah. disputes over um, different doctrinal beliefs. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's like hard because it's like Arianism strikes at the very heart of the meaning of Christianity, right? So, so yeah, in some sense you have to push back on Right. But then, you know, pride gets in the way. I mean, it's just like you can see so, so, so vividly the problem that sin presents to us, you know, in our, in our striving to be who Jesus would have us be. Um, sin gets in the way and these divisions occur and then they kind of calcify and they are still with us. I mean, it's been a thousand years since there's been. I I know that's a big area of um, contention for people that are either not in the church or have left Mm -hmm. the church is the just disagreements and divisions within the church. It's hard to understand. Yeah. it why under- there's so many denominations and why there's so many right. different ways of practicing faith and that's right. Yeah, I mean it undermines the witness, the credibility of Christianity in a very real way, and it's something that's to be lamented. So, so that's the story of how we got Eastern and Western churches. So next week, what we're going to do is we're going to try to get into the story of the Western churches schism which is, again, still with us today, which is the division between Protestants and Roman Catholics. All right, so we've covered a lot of grounds, um, mm-hmm. and we haven't even gotten to the split between the Catholic Church and the Protestant Church. Yep. Um, so we're going to have to get to that next week. That's what we'll start <laughs> off, I think, is with Luther and the Reformation. But we appreciate you guys tuning in to our podcast, and yep. we hope that you'll tune in next week and follow along with the rest of the story about the next vision of the church, which is a catastrophic one, um, but one that we experience today in the divisions between the Catholic and Protestants. Looking forward to it. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you guys next week.